The world needs more peacemakers. Is there any disagreement on that statement? The world needs more peacemakers. And if we look at the words of Jesus in the text this morning, what we see is that peacemaking characterizes those who are truly filled with the Spirit of God. Because peacemaking reflects the character of our God who is himself the great peacemaker. The God that we serve, he is the one who took on flesh and died for us. While we were still sinners, he died for us. While we were still hostile to him, he died for us. While we were at enmity with him, while we were his enemies, while we were fools in our hearts with absolutely nothing to commend ourselves to him, he died for us to create and establish peace between himself and us. He is the great peacemaker. But so many gospel presentations in our day do not focus on this broken aspect of our relationship with God. They, it doesn't, they don't focus on the fact that we have nothing in ourselves to commend to the Lord. But instead, they focus on this idea that Christ died for us because we are somehow lovable. We are valuable. We are worth saving. But here is the truth. No. And this, recognizing this, is what serves to amplify the wonders of the gospel of God, our great peacemaker. We were, we are, not worth saving. We are, we were, not worth saving. However, God is so good. God is so gracious. God is so merciful. And out of his character comes this unexpected, wonderful, abundant fountain of blessing to us. Peace with him through faith in Christ. And this faith in Christ ought to be and provide the foundation for us to pursue peace with one another and to create peace among those hostile to and estranged from one another. And so the question then is, in our world of riots, in our world of wars, in our world of rumors of wars and proxy wars and angerness and bitterness and slander and malice, where is the peace? Where are the peacemakers? Now, we're going to explain this beatitude, but just so you know, I'm going to kind of weave in and out and go all over the place until we get there. But I promise we're going to get there, okay? We will get there. But I want to start here by recognizing that everything in Scripture either points to or flows from the ministry, the life, and or the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Everything. And throughout the Old Testament, there are what we call types or patterns. Okay, A type or a pattern can be defined as this. 
an Old Testament person, place, or thing, or event that prefigures or foreshadows or points to a New Testament person, place, event, or thing. Does that make sense? A type or a pattern is defined as an Old Testament person, place, event, or thing that points to, prefigures, or foreshadows a New Testament person, place, event, or thing. Okay? And the New Testament makes a few of these types and these patterns or these foreshadowings explicitly clear to us when we read. For example, in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, the Apostle Paul wrote this, that Adam, remember Adam way back in the early parts of Genesis? Remember that guy, Adam? The Apostle Paul writes that Adam was a type or a pattern of the one who was to come. It was a type or a pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can go and read the context of that to figure out more what that means. You can read in Genesis 6 to 8 about the flood. And according to the Apostle Peter, the flood is in some ways a point or two or a type of baptism. You can read that in 1 Peter 3. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, goes to great lengths to refer to both the tabernacle and the sacrificial system as a whole, as a pattern or a type that points to or refers us to the redemptive work that is, uh, we find in Jesus Christ. And the one I want to kind of look at today is the Apostle Paul writing about the Passover being a type. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul wrote this, Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So this is the type or the pattern I want to focus on as we kind of launch into or springboard into our look at this morning's beatitude, which is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So let's go back. How does the Passover and the Exodus prefigure or foreshadow Christ? And then you you can ask yourself the question, what does this have to do with blessed are the peacemakers? We'll get to that, I promise. Israel had lived in Egypt for over 400 years. And for, mo- for the most part, their lives in Egypt were relatively peaceful. I mean, they had varying degrees of, of difficulty and tribulation while they were there. Until a pharaoh rose up in Egypt who, according to Exodus 1 verse 8, did not know Joseph. That's what the text tells us. This new Pharaoh rose up that did not know Joseph. The meaning is that this new Pharaoh or this new king had no remembrance of or no concern for the past. And all of the heroic and historic deeds that Joseph had done in Egypt. You remember, he was the one who who interpreted the dream that was given to Pharaoh that kept the entire nation from falling apart during a devastating famine. And this Pharaoh rose up to enslave the Israelites living in the land. Pharaoh, the text tells us, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And he made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, the Egyptians made the Israelites work as slaves, Exodus 1.14 tells us. What an existence, right? What an existence, living under the oppressive thumb of a ruthless overlord. 
And as their enslavement extended into the reign of yet another Pharaoh, Exodus 2 tells us that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Knew here means the idea that God is now going to actively engage in remedying this situation. The Lord rolled up his sleeves, and he got to work. And after a series of plagues that devastated and rocked and brought the nation of Egypt to reeling right down to the core, the Lord threatened one final plague. The death of all the firstborn throughout the land. On this night, each household belonging to the people of Israel were ordered to kill a Passover lamb. And they were ordered to, to take the blood of that Passover lamb and to, to paint it on the lintels and the doorposts of their houses. And on that night, as the angel of the Lord passed through the land of Egypt to strike down all the firstborn, that angel would see the blood on the door and pass over the houses and they would be spared the devastation of this final strike of the Lord against Egypt. They would be spared God's just and holy wrath. And the next morning... The people of Israel rose up, they woke up from their sleep, and everybody in every one of their houses was safe. But the people of Egypt, when they rose from their slumber, the text tells us, there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And as a result, Pharaoh, along with all of the rest of the people of Israel, urgently ushered the Israelites out of the land. Get out of here, they said. After witnessing such a disastrous event, they said, we will all be dead if we don't get rid of these guys. And so on this night, after 430 years of life in Egypt, Exodus 4, 1241 tells us that all of the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. Now you might think that this marks the end of this wonderful triumph, but no. Pharaoh's mind was changed. He wanted the slaves back after they had left the land. He said to himself, What have we done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Most likely, and no doubt, the specter of a number of half-finished pyramids and half-finished tombs all throughout the land with a people who hadn't themselves performed such labors for generations changed their minds. And so Pharaoh marshaled his fighting force, the greatest fighting force in the known world at the time, and set out to recapture these Israelites. And the Israelites, following the directions of the Lord, found themselves stuck at the direction of the Lord in an impossible situation. On one side, you've got the Red Sea, an incrossable, an uncrossable sea. And on the other side, an oncoming Egyptian army ready to recapture and re-enslave all of these people. Now, left to their own devices, what hope does Israel have in that moment? Nothing. They have no hope. The only hope that they have is that the Lord would act to save them. And 
the Lord did. Had he not acted, they were doomed. And Israel, terrorized by their circumstance, cried out to the Lord, who responded through his servant Moses, saying, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Beautiful text. And the Lord used Moses to divide the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted, and there were walls of water on both sides, and the text tells us that they went through on dry land. The Lord even went to the extent to dry the land that they walked on as they went through. The Lord protected them from the oncoming Egyptian army by a pillar of fire that protected them from the rear. And once the Israelites had crossed through, the Lord removed the pillar and the Egyptians went rushing headlong into the, into the sea. However, while in pursuit, while in the sea, the Lord threw the Egyptians into a panic. He clogged their chariot wheels and ensured that those wheels drove heavily. And upon their recognition that the Lord fought for Israel, it was too late. And the waters came crashing down. They were unable to escape. The Lord commanded Moses to stretch out his hand and his staff over the sea while the massive, well-trained, well-armed Egyptian army panicked. They tried to turn around. They tried to leave. And as Moses waved the staff over the waters, they came crashing down upon the army, killing every last soldier. You remember, right? The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Now, after centuries of varying degrees of affliction in Egypt, the Israelites find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea out of reach of a decimated Egyptian army, delivered from their harsh oppression and their enslavement. And they raised their eyes and they surveyed the scene and they saw freedom. The Lord had pulverized, disarmed, crushed, and completely dismantled the leadership and the armies of Egypt. The Lord led his people to freedom, and as a result, they broke out into songs of praise. So now when the Israelites are about to enter into the land that, they, that God had brought them up out of Egypt to possess, what is it that you think the Lord reminded them of over and over and over again throughout the book of Deuteronomy? The Lord continually reminded them of his act of delivering them from their forced labor and their exploitation in Egypt. And that act of the Lord provided the foundation for how Israel was to live in the land. Both in reference to the Lord himself in the praise and worship of the Lord, but also how they were to react and respond in their relationships to one another. Over 49 times in the book of Deuteronomy, you will encounter statements like this. Deuteronomy 5, 6, for example. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This statement right here provides the foundation for the giving of the Ten Commandments. The reason Israel was strongly warned against idolatry in the book of Deuteronomy is this, according to 6, chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. 
Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people around you. So you see the foundation for, the Lord, for Israel's fidelity and faithfulness to the Lord. His work of salvation and deliverance. And the reason that the Lord... The reason the Lord gives for requiring justice among the Israelites is this in Deuteronomy 24. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you to do this. The foundation for their relationships with one another, the Lord's delivering work in their lives. One more, although we could keep going. The ground and motivation for generosity among others, to others, and the refusal to be overtaken by self-interest in, in Israel is found in Deuteronomy 24. We read this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord may, your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go back over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Over and over and over again, the Israelites were told to remember. Remember your experience in Egypt. Remember that at one point in your history, you were enslaved to the, to the Egyptians, that they held dominion over you. Remember the harsh and oppressive treatment of your overlords. And then rejoice that the Lord your God has delivered you and saved you. And let that rejoicing and let that remembering of God's delivering and his victory in your lives impact how you live both in the worship of the Lord and in your relationships with the people of your nation. Let it inspire increased obedience to and dedication to the Lord who delivered you. Let it inspire increased care for and increased concern for others as you remember that you too were once the subject of a brutal and crippling overlord. The deposit of the Exodus provided the foundation for fidelity, the foundation for obedience, for fear and trust in the Lord. It was the foundation provided for their care, concern, and love for brothers and neighbors. And so the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, called all of this to mind. The celebration of the night the Lord passed over the houses of the Israelites and struck down the firstborn of Egypt was celebrated by the Israelites every single year in the Passover festival. 
And every year, a Passover lamb was slaughtered, reminding them of that actual night when the Lord secured deliverance and when the, the, sacrifice, the blood of the sacrificed lamb was applied to the lintels and door frames of, the, of their homes, restraining the wrath of the destroyer and ensuring that any firstborn children in the house escaped the judgment of God and lived through the night. But now, but now, says Paul, the lamb to whom all other lambs pointed, the lamb that all other slaughtered lambs pictured and foreshadowed, Jesus Christ, the true, the greater Passover lamb has been sacrificed. His blood has been shed and his blood accomplishes a greater act of salvation than the one that the Israelites experienced at the Exodus. The blood of our great Passover lamb, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, takes away the sin of the world. Everyone who comes to him in faith, everyone who believes in his word and entrusts their lives into his hand, have his cleansing, purifying, and atoning blood applied to the doorposts and the lintels of their hearts and are therefore saved from the coming wrath on the day, the great day of the Lord. The blood of Christ applied to our hearts saves us from the penalty for our sin. It delivers us from sin's crushing oppression. Sin is a worse overlord than Egypt, and sin once governed your life. Sin once set the goals for your life. Sin once reigned in your life, and now as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, sin and death no longer reign over anyone who trusts in Christ for salvation because Jesus has defeated them. He has destroyed their power over you, and all who believe in him have and are crossing over into the promised land on dry ground. The old taskmasters, the old life, it's been defeated. It is dead in the sea. And so now we look ahead to new life in Christ and we strive in full recognition of all that Christ is and all that Christ has done for us to live in obedience to him, to live in submission to him, and to live in imitation of him. So you see... The Exodus prefigured and pointed to our deliverance from an even greater and more devastating enslavement, that of sin. And even more, sin's horrendous consequence, hostility between us and God, division between us and God, enmity between God and us, our state of being an enemy of the God who reigns over all things. Jesus, God himself, took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. He came to us in order to deal with and to alleviate this situation of hostility that existed between himself and us. He did this by living a perfect, righteous, sinless life, that life that is required of anyone who would be right with God. And he accomplished this by voluntarily submitting himself to death, the most brutal and horrendous type of death. Death on the Roman torture device that we know as the cross. And there Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus took on the punishments. Jesus bore the righteous wrath that had been necessitated by our sin in order to pay for it. He died that day, was placed in a tomb, and three days later he took his life back up again because it was impossible for the author of life 
to be held in the grip of death. And Jesus was taken back up into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for all who believe in him as our great representative. And because of everything that Jesus has accomplished, because of everything that Jesus has secured, because any, for anyone who truly believes in him, G, the Apostle Paul declares this most wonderful, this most hope-bringing truth in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And like the Israelites were reminded again and again and again of God's deliverance from Israel, or God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian enslavement, and this provided a foundation for them as to how they worship and how they live with one another, as that provided the foundation upon which their life as a nation and a people were built, so too we who believe in Christ are reminded again and again and again throughout the New Testament of God's wonderful delivering of our souls from the dominion of sin and the dominion of death by Jesus Christ. And this ought to provide us a foundation upon which we build our lives and upon how we worship our God and how we live with each other. In Christ, God ceased. God put an end to the hostility that existed between him and all who come to him in faith. In Christ, God revealed himself to be the great peacemaker. And this is the great foundation upon which our Christian life in thought and in word and in deed is built. God is a peacemaker. Therefore, his children are also peacemakers. Which is why Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount reveals another characteristic of the one who has truly repented of their sin and turned in faith to Christ. And here it is. They will be peacemakers. This is not a negotiable. They will be peacemakers. Or as Jesus put it, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, do you notice who the blessing in this text is pronounced upon? The peacemakers, right? So what is a peacemaker? Peacemakers, if you use God as your example, are the ones who actively engage in, bringing, in the work of bringing or creating peace and harmony, harmony where there is conflict. Peacemakers are those who engage in the difficult labor of reconciling factions or persons that are divided from or at odds with each other. The peacemaker is one who strives for peace in their own relationships, and they will, if necessary, give up and lay down their own opinions, their own uh, ideas, and their supposed rights when they're not specifically biblical in order to promote and establish Peace. Peacemakers are those who actively toil to make peace that accords with the truth of God. Peacemaking calls for each of us in the power of the Holy Spirit in us to put to death 
those natural desires in us, those desires that want to gain advantage over another, to serve our own interests at the expense of other people, to hold on to those ideas that promote and create estrangement from another. It also means that we graciously bear with those whom we disagree with on secondary conscience issues. The peace spoken of in this beatitude, however, is not some false peace. See, there is this peace that we are kind of content with in our day that is not actually biblical peace. For many of us, as long as two or more parties are not actively arguing with one another or bickering with one another or openly divided against one another, this is enough for us. As long as we don't see the underlying currents of anger, the underlying currents of falsehood, and the underlying flow of division, we're okay. We're okay to rest in a content, a state of contentment because there's no active or obvious division. However, that's only a light and temporary healing of any wound. One that doesn't stop the festering, one that doesn't stop the infection, and one that will only lead to greater problems in the future. Doesn't actually address division. So then what does it mean to look to look like what does it mean or look like to actively promote peace? Well, the first thing we know, we must know, is the consistent mandate for peace in scripture. This is one of the clearest commands in scripture, be at peace with one another. Be peacemakers among one another. Like the Israelites, we're constantly reminded of the Lord's marvelous and powerful deed of deliverance and salvation. And this is the foundation upon which we serve, worship, and relate to one another. And so we too, we who love and serve Christ, are constantly reminded of His powerful peacemaking work. And this is held out to us as the foundation for our obedience to the Lord in peacemaking for our laboring, even when it's uncomfortable, to secure the bond of peace and the bond of unity among us. Now, when you read the epistles of, or the letters of the Apostle Paul, you will notice that in a few of the letters, he follows what we call an indicative to an imperative flow. This means that the first parts of the epistle are spent declaring the wonders of Christ, declaring his saving work, declaring his person and all of the benefits that have accrued to us as a result. It spends time declaring who we are and what we are in Christ. And it's only when this foundation is built, when we understand the work of God and we understand what that has done for us and we understand who we are because of that work, that Paul moves then to exhorting and encouraging and commanding obedience that ought to characterize those who believe. So the indicatives, they reveal who and what we are in and because of Christ. And the imperatives then are the exhortations to actually live that out. Okay? Does that make sense? The indicatives tell us who we are in Christ. The exhortations tell us how to live that out. So here are some examples. The Apostle Paul in, the, in his letter to the Romans, if you read it, he spends the first eight chapters just revealing the works of God in creation. 
He spends the first chapters of the letter describing the state of humanity and then finally reveals our complete and total inability to respond to our lack of desire to turn to the Lord. Instead, apart from the Lord, we would all left to ourselves rather suppress the knowledge of the truth in favor of following our own warped and corrupt passions. And as a result, the wrath of God is being poured out and will be poured out on the last day. And the text goes on to tell us that God, though, being rich in mercy and rich in abundant love, because he knew our helpless estate took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and he did what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements might be fulfilled in us. Thanks be to Christ. All who truly believe in him, according to Romans 1 to 8, are declared righteous and have peace with God through peace with God. Through Christ we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so Paul spends all of this time explaining this to us, building this foundation explaining the wonders of salvation secured by Christ. And it's only in chapter 12 that Paul begins exhorting us to live lives that correspond to all that we are and all that Christ has secured in the lives of those who believe. And in chapter 14, verse 19, after all of those wonderful realities are made clear to us, it's in chapter 14, verse 19, that Paul then urges the Roman believers as well as all of us saying, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. This idea of pursuit here means let us run after it. Let us hasten to it. You see, believers hasten to and run toward what makes for peace. Believers hasten towards and run to that which upbuilds other saints. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians is very similar. It's got that indicative to imperative flow. Here's who you are, and here's how you live that out. And the apostle reveals such wonderfully high and lofty truths like this in 2.4, Ephesians 2, verse 4. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen! And then later on, in that very same chapter, he says, He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, in this day, there were some rather large divisions that existed between Jew and Gentile. Cultural divisions, ethnic divisions, and these in Christ were eliminated, knocked down, and destroyed by our great peacemaker. And he brought together what was or what had before been divided. Christ knocked down and demolished not just the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, but the wall that exists between every single one of us who are divided. It is always knocked down in Jesus Christ among fellow believers. And anytime you keep it up, that's on you. You are being disobedient. 
But man, what a testimony to the world it would have been to have seen Jews and Gentiles after millennia of hostility coming and sharing tables together because their love for Christ had led to the absence of hostility among them. Wouldn't that have been a most amazing testimony? This is what the children of God do. They imitate him in making peace. And this truth then leads to Paul in Ephesians 4 telling us how to do it. Making the exhortation, saying, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see that verb? Eager. Eager. The love of God shown to us in Christ provides the foundation for Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian believers and to us that we live with one another in humility and in gentleness and an eagerness to maintain unity and peace with one another. An eagerness. How many of us are eager for peacemaking? We see a few more texts in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul's words to his young protege, Timothy, also apply to all of us who claim to love and serve the Lord as well. He urged Timothy, saying, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace among those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Again, pursue peace. And the author of Hebrews as well exhorts his readers in chapter 10, verse 14, to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And James, James pleads with those who read his letter, saying, who is wise and understanding among you? Right, so there's a good question. Who is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, that line is, it's very important. You see what we saw here? 
Wisdom from above is peaceable, gentle, open to reason, filled with mercy, impartial and sincere. And there is a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. So not only does the truth of our beatitude apply that the peacemakers shall be called sons of God, but peacemakers, according to James, also leave a mark. They sow a harvest of righteousness as they go out and promote peace and make peace among fellow believers. So many of us want to leave behind a legacy, right? Who wants to leave behind a good legacy? Why not live a life that would lead to this sentence being written on your tombstone? Here lies a peacemaker, one who sowed peace and harvested righteousness among God's people. That's what I want on mine. One more, although a, ton, a, a number of texts could be brought forward to prove the point that peacemaking is a non-negotiable among believers in Christ. The Apostle Peter speaking to his readers about the return of Christ, right? So here we are waiting for the return of Christ. I know some of us are really eager for that day when he returns. I know I am. I wish he would come back right now. Please come back. And he wrote, Beloved, since you are waiting for these, the these here means the events that will occur when Christ returns. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peace is one of the things that we strive for diligently while we await the return of our great God and Savior. And here he says, be diligent, meaning be zealous for it. Be eager for peace and make every effort to be at peace, always striving for peace so that when Christ returns, he will find you at peace. So again, what is this peace we are to strive for? Again, it is not some false and phony peace that seeks to simply remove or deal with the external and the obvious signs of hostility alone. The peacemaker seeks to address both the issue that causes estrangement as well as the people who are divided. Do you hear that? The peacemaker deals with the issue causing estrangement as well as the people who are divided. We are not peace fakers in this place. Christians are not to fake peace. And peace faking is simply avoiding outward hosti hostility while seething and boiling on the inside. That's just fake peace. No, we are those who promote first and foremost the righteousness of Christ, conformity to the image of Christ. The peacemaker points angry factions to Christ. And this is because... As we all grow up together into his image, we are all growing closer together because as we begin to reflect Jesus more, we all grow more like one another. The peacemaker and those involved in the process of peace-seeking all have Christ as their example. And so the peacemaker will then confront and address problems and labor to solve those problems and then labor to bring together those who are at odds to create and establish harmony and to do only one of those things, to deal with the issue without dealing with the people or to deal with the people without dealing with the issue is simply fake peace. It is an incomplete process. 
And now there are those, and I'm sure I know I've done it, and you've probably done it, and people do it. There are those who will simply try to sweep the issues under the carpet because it, in order to call forth, forth some visible truth. It's just easier to do that, isn't it? But again, it's not real peace. It just sends the conflict into the fester zone. And there it eats away at the parties until the conflict breaks out again. And this is difficult. Here's one of the things we have to know, that peacemaking is a disruptive force, right? As we note divisions, and as we take note of hostilities, we understand that to undertake the task of peacemaking will be difficult. Many will simply ignore the task because it is difficult. But listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's difficult to call people to account, isn't it? Especially when they are unwilling to admit their sin or unwilling to admit their wrongdoing. When they're unwilling to admit their contributions or they act out angrily and even maybe sometimes violently against those who raise the issues. We tend to find it easier to simply just avoid the disruption. We all want to go on living our own lives. We all want to get back to the comfort of our own couches, right? And so we avoid making clear calls for Christ-likeness, clear calls to obedience, clear calls to the pursuit of peace. We just avoid it. But Jesus doesn't leave that option open to us, does he? One of the signs of someone who has truly repented and put their faith in Christ is that they become peacemakers. The peacemaker is one who interjects into situations with the truth of God. They don't come with anything less. They remain inflexible when it comes to sin and disobedience to God's word. They give no permission in their trying to establish peace for sinners to sit in or continue in their sin. Because guess what? That, doing so, is ultimately leading someone away from Christ who is the source of peace. To let someone sit in their sin or to create a fake veneer of peace is to move someone away from Christ who is peace, the ultimate source of true peace. Peacemakers do not ignore division, hoping it just goes away. As God's people, if something is opposed to godliness and righteousness among us, we deal with it with clarity, with forthrightness, and in truth. Praying for and seeking to bring people together in eagerly, eagerly working to bring people together, diligently striving to bring people together in unity under the banner of Christ. So hear this clearly. Again, peacemaking is not simply the absence of hostility by any means necessary. Peace is not simply the removal of visible anger. Peacemakers do not stand for a phony, fake veneer of peace. Peacemakers understand that true peace is created only when the Word of God carries the day. When the Word of God carries the day in the hearts of those who are at odds. And so peacemakers always remain committed to, as Paul declared in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love so that we may grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ, the peacemaker, the great peacemaker, 
Now, that's the exhortation to you. But what is the blessing that is given or declared to the peacemakers? Look at what, look what Christ says. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, sons there, you know, that includes all of you women in here as well. It's a catch-all word in that sense. You become an heir of the Lord. It means that the blessings of peace are wonderful, that God will own you as his own, both now and on into eternity. It is the peacemakers. This blessing belongs to the peacemakers. It is one of high esteem. It is one of great honor. And the peacemakers are promised eternal life as a child of God in his eternal home. Do you want to reflect Jesus to the world? One of the great ways of doing that, one of the most powerful ways of doing that, one of the most impactful ways of doing that is by being a peacemaker. Because peacemakers are so few and far between, it seems, in the world in which we live, right? world in which we live is just growing ever increasingly at odds to one, with one another. And so you and I and all who claim to be followers of Christ need to be actively engaged in bringing peace in this world. And as we do that amongst one another, that will be a wonderful declaration and proclamation of the gospel to everyone that's outside of these walls. It's a great gospel witness to be peacemakers. So, are you a peacemaker this morning? If you aren't, you are being disobedient to Jesus Christ. But we know Christ is faithful we know that he's forgiving. We know that he's gracious. We know that he's merciful. He forgives all of us who confess our sin and come to him. And so this morning, you can, like I can, bow our knees before the Lord and pray that we too can imitate him in the great act of being peacemakers in this world. Amen? Amen, Father. We praise you and we thank you. We praise you for being the great peacemaker. We thank you for, for showing us your delivering power in the Old Testament as you saved your people Israel from enslavement and bondage in Egypt. We thank you for using that as a foundation upon which to build how they relate to one another. And we thank you for the even greater delivery and victory that is ours in Christ as we've been delivered from the oppression and the crushing weight and rulership of sin. Lord, I ask that you would help us all to remember that we were all at one time enslaved to that brutal dictator that is sin. And you created peace. You ended the hostility. And Lord, I pray that as we look to you, the great peacemaker, that we, your children, would want to be just like you. Peacemakers as well. But Lord, this is not something that we can do in our own power. In fact, it's impossible for us to do in our own power. We're too committed to self. And so I pray that you would help us to remove self, be impartial, speak the truth in love, 
and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ by our efforts at peacemaking. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Amen.